Hello, and welcome to Podcast is a Seven Letter Word. I'm Allison Fasto, partner at Seven Letter. I'm Tim Berger of Council at Seven Letter. And our guest today is Daniel Lipman, a reporter covering the White House in D.C. for Politico, and previously a co-author of Politico's Playbook. And we have a number of fun things in common that we will perhaps get to discuss. But, Daniel, this is your second presidential administration as a journalist in Washington. What's it like covering the White House these days? Well, first, uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, uh, I'm, in, you know, excited about this new podcast. Uh, in terms of your question, this is probably the craziest administration to cover. Uh, I'm sure you probably think to yourself, you know, I want to get back into the mix uh, sometimes in terms of like the amount of news and just the uh, the interesting personalities and storylines. Um, you know, as a reporter, it's kind of nonstop. So when I was doing playbook, I would wake up at you know, 4 a.m. every morning to during weekdays to put put together the newsletter. And now I don't have to get up that early, but uh, there's always like five stories that I'm working on or I'm helping out on. Uh, and you know, it's it's hard to kind of keep track of everything that's going on with impeachment. And there's still major policy disputes. There's, you know, Seema Verma, the administrator of CMS, is fighting with the HHS Secretary Alex Azar. Uh, and so the amount, I think, what's different about this, this administration is the people are less establishment folks. And so they're more, they were on the campaign. Uh, and a lot of Republican, uh, veteran Republicans signed these anti-Trump, these never Trump letters. And so they were blacklisted mostly from coming into the administration. And so uh, Trump is having to rely on people who are untested uh, largely. And so it's made it harder to fill lots of jobs that are still uh, unfilled in this administration. Uh, And the amount of leaking and internal rivalry is pretty epic. And so that there's always things that people want to kind of get out there or uh, things that are, uh, you know, I had a story this past week about a Treasury staffer who uh, resigned because his uh, his mother paid for um, him to take, uh, you know, for someone in Rick Singer's uh, Varsity Blues scandal to take online classes for him. And so, of course, he, he wasn't able to stay in the administration, and so he had to leave. And so I wrote that, I got that scoop. And so trying to see, you know, get as many scoops as possible is very important. To, to your point about the Seema Verma and Alex Azar um, dispute, is it somewhat surprising to you that in the context of this administration, that has lasted for as many news cycles as it has? It feels like every day for the last week, there's been another nugget that comes out on that. Yeah, I think the craziest nugget was how she, um, and this was Dan Diamond uh, and my political health care colleagues, that she her uh, jewelry was stolen and she tried to get the government to pay for it back uh, which is probably not the wisest use of taxpayer dollars but of course it's surprising that uh, you know there's always more uh, kind of dirt to uncover uh, and people have agendas and so uh, and I think they probably feel like uh, it's like open season to fight against each other given that uh, Trump's attention is on impeachment and saving his own job, and so he's less worried about. He's not obsessed with every cabinet secretary, and so he's he really pays attention to only a few. And so Maggie Herman made that point on Twitter that you know if you're the sector of labor or education, you kind of get a free pass to as long as you don't mess up. And 
you know, get like private jets like uh, former HHS Secretary Tom Price, then you're kind of uh, you have a free pass. Does it seem like uh, the president, even though he ran that show, The Apprentice, and used to end it by saying you're fired, that he actually doesn't like to fire people in government and in reality? Is that yeah, true? I think that's totally true that he will let people languish and he will want them to resign first. Uh, and he'll give hints and he will uh, kind of keep people out of meetings and uh, won't people won't keep people in the loop uh, because he doesn't he's too uh, his personality is to avoid conflict in private in public. He loves conflict because, uh, you know, at Trump rallies and on Twitter. Uh, which is a public platform uh, that uh, only, you know that kind of feeds his uh, urge to to continue to fight. But in uh, private, he wants everyone to you know go along to get along, basically. Well, one is sort of posturing, and the other requires actual action, right? <laughs> yeah, and he uh, is loath to make decisions sometimes, uh, even though he prizes himself as this big decision maker, but. Uh, he wants to hear every argument often, but he also doesn't read the policy briefings that people come up with him. Uh, people, you know, policy advisors uh, and NSC staffers are going to give him. And so that makes it hard because there's an information gap and because his, his attention span is just is not going is not getting longer. <laughs> so which reporters inspired you when you were thinking of getting into journalism and when you uh, were starting out? Well, I think um, people like David Brooks and um, and Tom Friedman uh, and Adam Nagurney from the New York Times, um, they were, and John Schwartz and Jim Rutenberg, these were all people that I had met, uh, or many of them I had met uh, in uh, high school or college uh, when I was trying to kind of see what, what I was interested in, and I... Um, you know, I watched all the president's men eventually, uh, and I, so Robert Redford inspired you. <laughs> yeah. So, the, uh, and now you inspire me too, in terms of, you know, your help on, um, the, you know, helping me think about, uh, how to, you know, pursue my craft, uh, sometimes. And so it's a matter of, uh, you know, trying to, uh, live up to people who are, uh, you know, keep because a lot of the, the facts are under attack right now, and so you just have to bulletproof uh, your stories and not cut any corners and you know make every call you can. And so I wasn't actually a very social person in high school. I was more interested in reading the news, so I didn't have a ton of friends. Uh, and so uh, you know, news and journalism and politics became my outlet for expressing my interests. And so um, now that I'm in uh, in the field or in you know in that profession, uh, it kind of has served me well in terms of uh, now I love to talk to people and I'll call anyone and I always try to get people's cell phone numbers and um, you know you're, you're trying to get both access but also you don't want to just be an access journalist you want to uh, write stories that are um, revelatory and that make people uncomfortable if it's the facts and so you mean afflict the powerful. Yeah, so uh, you know, there's uh, you know, powerful people have, and or institutions they have enough PR people and lobbyists that you know my role is not to you know help them in that way, and so it's to you know, our our obligation is to serve our readers, 
that's our customer basically. And so um, doing anything I can to further that goal and to get news out there and to get to serve our readers in terms of you know, even small items when I you know did playbook that you know, it's still valuable you know gives people information uh, especially in this town where information is currency. So now jump sort of a follow on to that question uh, about those who inspired you. We have in common Mike Allen as a as a former colleague and yeah. and mentor. He worked with me for a year at Time Magazine, and of course we were in the press corps together. And then you know you worked with him for a lot of years. And uh, so tell me what you learned from Mike. Well, he was uh, you know one of my top mentors in terms of helping uh, you know inspired me to be a reporter and not just um, you know to try to expand my report repertorial. Uh, talents and skills because he was I saw him how he worked and he his work was you know always talking to people on the phone meeting people for a coffee or lunches or drinks or dinners uh, and you know to try to get good stories and to to deepen relationships and so uh, he taught me the value of that because without it if you're a journalist the most important thing is your source list and your um, that's your Rolodex. And so, and the ability for people to call you back that if, if you have 500 numbers and of powerful people and no one calls you back or no one texts you back, then that's not very valuable. And so if you have a high percentage, uh, of people who will, you know, get back to you, that, uh, is useful. And so, um, he would always be asking, um, you know, for people's phone numbers, uh, when he was interviewing them at, political events uh and so uh and now at axios he you know continues to have a newsletter and to do uh, his events and his scoops and so i think he taught me to you know there, there was one thing he said that uh, if you're a beat reporter on something and my beat is white house and washington so it's not just white house uh then if you at the end of the year if you look at uh, all of your stories if you can find one at least one per month that is something that will stand the test of time and that will have that you know future generations can read uh you know when they're studying this time period or that cap encapsulate your your beat very well then you will have done, done a good job yes so that's what i've tried to do in my current beat and you know even when i was at uh, playbook doing those types of stories and so not i'm not covering the daily tweets as much it's more the you know bigger picture or features um so that was uh a lesson that uh you know he taught me so president trump you know is constantly criticizing the media uh the fake media, quote unquote, um, it's sort of part of his routine. How does this affect how you and Politico and other publications cover the White House? Yeah, I mean, you you referenced earlier that the facts are under attack. I mean, very often reporters themselves are under attack. In so many ways, it feels like we're living in an era, a golden era of journalism, so much amazing work being done. And yet the public, perhaps a direct result of our president's words and actions on a regular basis, have decreasing levels of trust in what the media shares. I mean, it's it's it feels like a, a really difficult position to be in as a reporter. Yeah, although I think I, my uh, my theory about that is just to do my job the best I can and not to get too concerned about 
uh, atmospherics and what Trump says, and because he's been saying that same line, and we've actually seen subscriptions at all the public, all the major publications like Politico, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, just um, have a steady increase. And there, the, if you look at the approval ratings of the media, it's actually also increased slightly. And so I think that might be reflecting more liberals who are maybe they were skeptical of the corporate media like Bernie Sanders says, and now they see our value in terms of we're holding this administration accountable. Uh, but that's something that uh, you're trying to kind of put in the back of your mind, ignore, and like as long as you don't get death threats, uh, then uh, you know, I don't read every tweet or, you know, I do get emails some, you know, every, you know, a couple of times every week where, uh, they people take issue with one story or another or they call me fake news but it's like you know i always say thank you for a reading and so <laughs> if they're if you're re- if they're reading then it, then you know that it's making a impact if someone feels obligated to write um but it's not um the white you still get a lot of access at the white house and people often call you back and so um but there's definitely sometimes concern among sources that you know of course they want to protect themselves when they talk to you so what would you say is an underreported story or topic right now uh an underreported story or topic i think um i've you know probably climate change i covered uh energy news and environmental news for ene news uh, and i've done some of the environmental reporting that uh, Politico as well, you know, just kind of parachuting in on different EPA things. Um, and I think if you look at the, uh, I'm not a climate scientist, but if you look at the projections, it just, um, and there are stories written about it, but because people are focused uh, more on impeachment, uh, the, uh, the damages of climate change that are already happening and sea level rise um, and the future projections that I don't think that's getting enough play. And so, uh, and of course you have a president who is a climate denier, even though his own uh, Turnberry in Scotland, they've, you know, they've, uh, my colleague Ben Schreckinger wrote stories years ago about how they would factor in climate change in their plans and they would tell the, Scottish government, well, you know, uh, about how climate change was affecting their properties or whatever like that, or they need a seawall or something. And so that is something that um, is, I think, is just, you know, that's a, this is an existential thing, if you believe the scientists. And so the waters are going to rise in the swamp, huh? Pretty much. And so, uh, yeah, I think what will eventually happen is that uh, if you get... Uh, uh, the carbon levels, if they get high enough, and uh, then or the CO two levels, then uh, they'll have to go to geoengineering in terms of you know creating you know uh, different technologies, billion dollar uh, uh, devices to uh, to try to turn back the clock on climate change. This is kind of the Twitter era where where brevity and quick takes and hot takes dominate, but. You spend a lot of time on long reads, and somehow that's a niche you have at Politico. Uh, tell us how you approach that. So how I curate the – so I, um, even though I don't do Playbook anymore, I still – there's a section called Great Weekend Reads um, where I will be um, you know, on, fr- on Saturdays and Sundays in Playbook where I curate 12 or so of the best reads. And so um, it comes from – 
just me reading a number of different publications like The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Fanny Fair, Bloomberg, Business Week, uh, and others uh, throughout the course of the week. And then I will actually save different links in my Friday calendar. And so on Friday when it rolls around, I will be grabbing and uh, you know curating them together, and so it's things that are that also stand the test of time that are not um, you know that I think are useful to readers, and also people will have more people have more time on the free time on the weekend, and so they can kind of dig into stories that they otherwise uh, would not be able to do. And um, you know, my there's also different sites that I look at uh, to help me pick pick them, which I give proper credit to so the browser long form longreads.com uh, that's their whole whole uh, you know business platform and so that's uh, I will be looking at those sites as well and other people send me pitches and you know my girlfriend Alice Lloyd a freelance writer she um, you know is a big fan of these and so she will sometimes send them so I will you know I take people can send them to me too Daniel at politico.com <laughs> As someone um, with young children, I look at that list wistfully on the weekends, <laughs> but it has become my um, my flight reading list. Yeah. So when I'm on a plane and I don't want to deal with like a news, like a paper, <laughs> I've got those saved on my phone. People use Pocket too to save them sometimes yeah. as well, and so um, a lot of uh, influential people have told me how they how much they like them. So including, you know, uh, I think Sean Spicer said that and, you know, others, so. He had a lot of time to read when he was waiting backstage. Yeah, Dancing with Stars. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't ask him if he uh, read that uh, section then, but you never know in makeup for. So um, while obviously fake news is hyperbole, uh, people do make errors at times, and that's the number one thing as a journalist that you try to avoid. You try to be accurate, you try to avoid errors. So any pointers for your approach to trying to avoid errors? And then we'll come to your, uh, uh, you can give us a nutshell of your origin story, which sure. is related to errors. Yes. Uh, so uh, it's a matter of just being, if, if you've talked to an, enough people for a story, then you kind of know where the truth lies, hopefully. Uh, and so I transcribe uh, every interview I have um, that I want to use for a story, and so I can get exact quotes, uh, and so, and then often checking with people again if you have a question, uh, but also uh, if you. So I had this uh, long piece uh, earlier this week about Christiane Allen, who is Rudy Giuliani's twenty-year-old uh, spokeswoman, who's a college student, uh, at Instagram Liberty star, right? Instagram uh, MAGA star. Uh, she goes to Liberty University online, not in, in person, uh, and she's, you know, embroidered and uh, kind of made up some of the titles she's had uh, with various places like the, you know, Trump Victory Committee and the Daily Caller and the Trump, the 2016 Trump campaign, where she claimed she was a spokeswoman when there was only maybe like Hope Hicks and Katrina Pearson who were uh, the official campaign spokespeople. And so the... Uh, she, uh, so that ended up being 4,500 words, which is probably one of the, like, the longest pieces I've ever written. With that particular story and with as many others I c as I can, it's just rereading uh, your, uh, the edited version back multiple times. And then with that story, I printed out a couple of copies and I was just going through line and sentence, uh, paragraph and just check marking where, you know, that 
I've, I know that's true, I know that's true, and then I need to fix that thing, so I circle it, and then I print it again. And once I am, uh, you know, fully certain that it's all clean, then you can uh, then you can tell your editor that it's it's good to go, uh, because especially if you're taking uh, if you're doing a piece about how someone is uh, you know a kind of a con artist, you don't want to get stuff wrong in that piece because then it looks embarrassing to have a correction attached to you know at the top or the bottom of the piece. Um, and it just gives more grist for people saying if you can't even get basic facts right or if you can't spell people's names properly then uh, why should I believe you? Interested in hearing more? Part 2 of our conversation with Dan Lipman of Politico coming in 2020.